Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. As you know, at New Books in History, we scour the globe for exciting new history books the world needs to know about, and we interview their authors. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Tori Olson, who is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Professor Olson has just published Agrarian Crossings, Reformers, and the Remaking of the U.S. and Mexican Countryside with Princeton University Press. Uh, in their America in the World series, and a lot of terrific books, really terrific books have come out of that series, of course. Uh, Professor Olson's book tells a remarkable and fascinating and underappreciated story. It's about how, in the 1930s and 40s, a group of reformers in the United States and in Mexico undertook to transform the rural worlds of their respective countries in the name of social justice and agrarian productivity. In this fine-grained analysis, which Professor Olson calls not a comparative history, but a history of comparisons, he demonstrates how closely the histories of Mexico and the American South paralleled one another. Parallel histories yielded parallel problems, chiefly mass rural poverty and economic deprivation. And he says, uh, whether in Mississippi or Michoacan, Tennessee or Tabasco, the rural masses saw few tangible benefits in the economic miracle heralded by boosters in Atlanta and Mexico City. And so in that decade, historians sometimes like to call the long 1930s, Mexican and U.S. reformers crossed the border again and again to share models and ideas and to undertake a project of rural revitalization with varying methods and varying results. And we're going to talk to Professor Olson about all of that now. Professor Olson, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Monica. It's such an honor and pleasure to be on the New Books Network blog. Uh, it's great to be here. Good. I'm so happy to hear that. That's wonderful. Um, soon the world will be hearing you talk about your book. Uh, and we'd like to start, I, I usually try to start this way, um, by asking you a little bit about your own kind of path towards the writing of this book, your own intellectual path, uh, and whatever ideas sort of led you to the place where you where you um, where you began, where you yeah. began with the writing of the book, can you tell us about that? Absolutely, yeah. I think most historians uh, often find that their research is intertwined with their own life histories, and I think that I'm no exception. But <laughs> there's no sort of linear path between who I am and who I am intellectually, and, and between this book. So it deserves a little bit of explanation. Um, I think it's important to understand uh, in trying to figure out me as an author is that I kind of started, uh, there's a lot you can learn about me by realizing that I'm a non-American writing American history. <laughs> so I was, as some uh, listeners might guess by my uh, name, uh, I'm Scandinavian originally. I was born and raised in Sweden to Swedish parents uh, and came to the United States when I was about 10 years old. Uh, and got really, really fascinated with American history from pretty early on, from a pretty young age. 
Um, but I'd always, I came at American history from a different angle of those who'd been born and bred within the United States, who kind of grew up uh, um, imbibing the sorts of national myths that uh, are a big part of American history. So I think I've been sort of allergic to American exceptionalism from the very beginning, from about age 10 <laughs> or so, whether I didn't know, I didn't use those words back then, of course. Uh, but I've, I've come at American history from a, a different perspective. Now, why the heck does that bring the American South and Mexico into the equation, that deserves a little more explanation as well. Right? So I went off to uh, university in uh, the US. I went to the University of Massachusetts in, at Amherst. And while there, I immediately gravitated toward history, which had always been my favorite field. Um, and something about American history in particular really appealed to me. It just seemed so exotic to me, right? I think a lot of undergrads in the US seem, Amer seem American history as something familiar and boring. But to me, as a Swede, uh, coming from outside, American history seems so exotic and seems so just crazy and different from Swedish history, for example, right? And I think the one the one black hole that really sucked me in when I was an undergraduate was the Civil War. Uh, just this, this massive bloodshed over the question of slavery it just seemed, again, so foreign and different to Swedish history or Scandinavian history uh, in many ways. So I got pulled into that and if I'd thought the, the United States was a weird place, learning about the American South, it seemed like an even weirder place to begin with. So I, I was so captivated by history as an undergraduate that when I when I finished, I knew I'd be applying for graduate school. And it was U.S. Southern history that really uh, appealed to me more than anything at all. So that, that took me down to the University of Georgia, where I ended up doing a master's and a Ph.D. and ended up living eight years in the state of Georgia. That was my first introduction to Southern living. <laughs> Uh, and being down there again as this Swede, kind of a Swedish Yankee, right? Because I'd, I'd been in Massachusetts for most of my life uh, in the U.S. previously. As a Swedish Yankee trying to figure out what made the South tick, both now and in the past, uh, it led me to a bunch of different epiphanies as well, right? I think I became frustrated with the way that a lot of uh, Americans approached Southern history in the sense that I got the sense that so much of Southern history had been written as a counterfactual. Basically, why the South didn't become more like the North, right? Like why Mississippi didn't become more like Minnesota. I feel like so much Southern history has been written from that lens. And then I also got this real uh, uh, sense that a lot of Southern history, Southern history had been written from the perspective of isolation and disconnection as representing the, the major defining characteristics of the South, right? That what made it unique was that it was disconnected from national trends, that it was disconnected from global and international trends um, as well. So this is a sort of stew that I was percolating in um, uh, as I got toward this project in particular. And if you'd like, I'd, I'd love to, I'd be happy to say more about, you know, the particular, the book itself and how I came to it. This is the kind of general milieu that I was, I was uh, living and breathing and uh, working my way up to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's do that next, because that, that was going to be sort of my my um, follow-up question, was to ask you to sort of, at least here at first, let's just sort of walk through what you think the kind of key themes of the book are. We'll, we'll yeah. flesh these themes out later as we go along, but if you want to kind of give the readers a, a kind of a chunk of what you, you know, the important parts of the book for you. Sure. Well, let me, let me start off. I think a lot of the story of how I came to this research project it grew out of two sort of aha moments. And a lot of it came when I was reading for my comprehensive exams, uh, uh, <laughs> funnily. Uh, this is something important for graduate students listening to this. And 
terrified of the prospect of doing exams and, you know, thinking of it as a you know, torture chamber of sorts. Well, it might be, but you have some really good ideas while you're doing it because you're just digesting so much information uh, at the time. And uh, while I was reading for my exams, I came across two sort of aha moments, like why has no one talked about this? And the first one was basically this, that during the 1930s in the United States and in Mexico, you've got these left-leaning populist presidents uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Lazaro Cárdenas in Mexico, who are uh, expanding the size of their governments and their governments reach into everyday people's lives and are talking openly about social justice, right? About inequality and about how to do something about it. Uh, and they're talking particularly about rural inequality, right? I mean, the United States and Mexico, uh, the U.S. was primarily, it was largely a rural nation, even more so in Mexico. Um, so in this shared moment, you have these two presidents, um, overseeing these large rural reform movements, and no one had ever written about them together. <laughs> no one had ever talked about Cardenas and Roosevelt together. I mean, there'd been small things in articles here and there, but there'd never been a comparative study. There'd never really been anything. And this, this struck me as something that seemed so impossibly obvious that it, it had to be taken on, right? It seemed to me like a, a real piece of low-hanging fruit <laughs> in many ways. Uh, that a transnational historian, someone who's trained in, two, in multiple languages and in multiple historiographies, could just snap up and munch on pretty, really uh, quickly and easily, <laughs> right? Low-hanging fruit that you've got this moment, you know, from the very top level of presidential history, you've got these two uh, reformers, these reformist presidents, doing somewhat similar things. So were they similar? Were they different? And my main question that I came at was, um, were they influenced by one another, right? Were, were was Roosevelt paying attention to Cardenas and vice versa? Uh, was there any overlap? Was there any dialogue? Was there any conversation? And uh, My book, uh, we'll talk more about it later on, but I found that absolutely there was plenty of that. Okay, so that's the first kind of aha moment. Like Roosevelt and Cardenas, 1930s, U.S. and Mexico, two countries right next door to one another. Why has no one ever written about them uh, as a common moment, um, as being part of a common sort of effort? The second effort... That uh, the second, I'm sorry, the second uh, aha moment, the second sort of epiphany that I had, also while reading comps. I think this is actually during my oral exam, which is hilarious. That you know, three hours of tooth pulling uh, agony actually <laughs> yielded one of the best insights that I ever had in my intellectual career so far, um, which was about uh, a phenomenon known as the Green Revolution. Okay, and the Green Revolution. I, I bet there's still some listeners who probably never even heard of this, right? And don't feel bad about that. Listeners, that's not a problem. A lot of people still don't really know what, or haven't heard that much about the, the Green Revolution. Um, and I, it's one of my favorite things to talk about and to write about and think about, because I really think it's one of the most important things that's happened in the course of the 20th century. It's a really gets, it's not enough credit for its importance. So in a nutshell, the Green Revolution is understood broadly as the extension of U.S. agricultural technologies and methods to the so-called third world during the Cold War. Right, during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in particular, technologies and uh, techniques such as hybrid seeds, uh, uh, chemical pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, uh, mechanical irrigation techniques, um, mechanization via tractors and some things like that, um, extended from the United States into India, into Mexico, into Colombia, Afghanistan, the Philippines, this massive campaign that was undertaken for multiple decades uh, by U.S. reformers and their allies in other countries um, uh, to try to, what they saw as feeding the world, right? Trying to produce more food uh, and thus end hunger and 
better yet, and communism, because everyone knows that if you have a full belly, you don't vote for the communists or you don't start a revolution. Right? So um, the Green Revolution has been largely understood as this major event in global history, right? And I think more, and there's been a bunch of great books that have come out in the last decade that have made the Green Revolution much more of a sort of um, everyday word in 20th century global history. But the Green Revolution in, in the existing literature, at least when I was taking my comprehensive exams, when I came up with this aha moment in 2010, uh, was that this was a story of the third world, right? This was a story of the global south. Uh, this is a story, uh, this was not part of American history, right? This is not part of first world history. This is a part of global South history. It's how India came to transform its wheat production or Mexico to transform its corn production um, and uh, how this was an incredibly important um, uh, transitional point in feeding people and making possible our massive global populations today. Uh, but then also in changing the countryside and uprooting peasants uh, who couldn't uh, adopt some of these new technologies in causing widespread uh, inequality, landlessness, all these sorts of issues. But it, it was it was taught and, and written about largely as something that happened, you know, in the southern tier of the, of the world, right? Um, but so I was reading in, in a sort of global history ex, uh, list for my exams, and this is the literature I'm coming across. But then I'm also reading in my southern history, U.S. southern history list, that talks all about the Rockefeller Foundation. And the Rockefeller Foundation is largely understood as the pioneer of the Green Revolution. They were a New York-based philanthropy who undertook many of these agricultural extension techniques in Mexico, India, Philippines, places like this. Um, they, they're often written about as the key protagonists uh, in this sort of traditional global uh, Green Revolution narrative. But as I was reading through my uh, American South list at the very same time, I was figuring out that there's lots and lots of literature, lots and lots of, his, of historiography that deals with Rockefeller reformers, not in India or the Philippines, but in Georgia and in Mississippi and Alabama. Because the Rockefeller philanthropy, as it began, was not in the 1950s and 60s in the Cold War context, but it was in the, the first decade of the 20th century. It was in 1903, 1904, when the Rockefeller family begins giving money to organized philanthropy. And their primary target is the American South. Because the American South was this sort of domestic laboratory in many ways for conceiving of poverty and underdevelopment. And so I was reading in these American, uh, in, in this U.S. South literature about Rockefeller reformers in the progressive era, in the, you know, roughly between 1906 and 1914. And then I was reading about the Green Revolution in Mexico and India in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. But there's absolutely no link, right? The folks working on Southern history had no clue about the Green Revolution, or if they had a clue, they didn't mention it, right, as something that was connected to what the Rockefeller reformers did in the South beforehand. Um, and then the global uh, Green Revolution literature on the so-called global South never mentions the American South, right, or very, very rarely in passing, right? There's very little mention of the fact that um, these global campaigns that were so transformative during the Cold War got their start within the American South, right? So this seemed to me like a really important moment as well, that I could thread this acknowledged theme in U.S. Southern history with this major theme in sort of global South history. Uh, and I could get at that sort of irony, right, of American South and global South. I mean, the American South for much of its history has also been a sort of periphery within the core of the United States. Um, and it's a place that's had a history that looks a lot like India, Mexico, uh, uh, Cuba, Brazil, I mean, the list goes on and on. And this is, 
it's not new to think this way. It's probably the most important Southern historian of the 20th century was this guy C. Van Woodward, uh, who was at Yale for many, many decades. And he, in, the, in the 50s, he wrote this uh, fantastic piece about the irony of Southern history. Uh, and the irony of Southern history, he wrote in the 50s, was that um, a lot of folks are shocked at, you know, coming from a Northern vantage point, are shocked at why the South looks so different from the North, like right, that it faced poverty and military defeat and underdevelopment. But the irony is that the South just looks a lot like the rest of the world in many ways, and that, that the North is the exceptional part. The North underwent a uh, path, a historical path of development that didn't look anything like most of the world's population, right? So Woodward is talking about this back in the 50s. It just had been really slow in coming out in the historiography, and I thought that with this Green Revolution story, I could, I could leap into it and try to, try to, to, try to get myself heard in, in, that, uh, in that debate. Yeah. So those are the two sorts of aha moments, right? The 30s uh, uh, and the, the South in Mexico, uh, I'm sorry, the Roosevelt and Cardenas together at the moment, and then this Green Revolution story that, that spans throughout the 20th century. Those are the two moments that really drive uh, the book uh, and the two sort of major arguments that I'm trying to make. With. Yeah, you know, that's a great story. I like that story a lot, too, because it is it is so true in our lives as historians that we it, it's it's very often that the best questions come to us when we're when we're looking at, at disparate things, at things that are not supposed to belong together, we think, and then we start reading a bit more and we find out that actually these two things, it's crazy to us that they haven't been discussed together in the same frame before. So that's a fantastic story. And I hope lots of graduate students are listening too. Right? Cause that's, a, but for all of us really, I mean, that's, that's how, that's how you come to a project is you, you have a moment where suddenly something that, um, you know, one of these things is not like the others. And then, in fact, it is, you know, and what a great revelation that is. So let right. me ask you to continue. Right. I mean, just to be reading, just to be reading American and Latin American history at the same time, in the same week with the same books, that for me would give rise to so many fruitful uh, questions and, and, and problems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then Sorry, go ahead, please. It, it almost seems like fate then, you know, that you happen to be reading them together. Yeah. Um, right. I, I'm just going to ask you now to, you know, to, to get, let's get, let it get a little bit deeper into the book and the kind of the way that the book is structured. Um, and I'll, I, I, you know, one of the chapters that I liked the best was, I think it's the first, I think it's chapter one, where you very beautifully yeah. lay out the kind of political, agricultural, social, structural similarities, uh, between Mexico and the United States South. Uh, and you kind of demonstrate these, the parallel histories of these two places from the 1870s, uh, through the 1920s. So I wonder if you could kind of talk to us about those parallels and about the project to thrust the U.S. South and Mexico more fully into capitalist modernity, as you put it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, so chapter one is titled Parallel Agrarian Societies. And it basically serves as a sort of a stage setter, right, to bring, to invite readers into the narrative, into the action that, that comes later um, by looking at the American South and Mexico, not quite all of Mexico, but the plantation regions of Mexico in particular, which are wide and uh, cover good chunks of the country, um, and basically looking at whether these places are maybe more similar than they are different during the lead up to the story. So, from, like you said, the 1870s through the 1920s. And um, the basic story that I tell in uh, narrating these places side by side, and I, I will say that this chapter is, is somewhat of uh, uh, um, unique within the book because it's really, it, it actually is a comparative history 
above all, right? The, the, the five chapters that follow are really connected histories, or as I call them, uh, histories of comparison, historical actors themselves making comparison. And in this chapter where I look at the South and plantation Mexico uh, over this 50-year time span, it's really comparative, right? I'm basically laying out these, the development of these two places side by side, not to show necessarily influence and connection between them, but to invite readers in to learn about what was going on, right? And a lot of, a lot of the reason I wrote this chapter too, which felt, felt odd in sometimes, but I'm really excited to hear that, that you liked it, um, was to, was knowing that my audience might be from either historiography, right? That I might have Mexican historians reading this book and that I'd likely have plenty of U.S. historians reading it too. And I kind of assumed that neither really knew much about the other side, right? I mean, most people who work on the U.S. South or really U.S. history as a whole, they're not deeply versed in Mexican history. Um, and likewise for um, historians of Mexico as well. They don't, you know, they might know the broad con contours, especially if they are Americans or if they work within the United States. They might know the broad contours of American history, but they probably weren't super familiar with the populist movement and, and what it might mean in the 1880s and 1890s. Right? So basically in this 1870s to 1920s period, I argued that there's a heck of a lot of parallels and similarities between what happens in the United States South and in Mexico. Right? To start off with, both places are invaded militarily. The United States invades Mexico in the 1840s. Uh, and then the U.S. South is invaded by the U.S. government, by the North, right, in the 1860s. And those invasions do massive damage to their societies. And there's this long period, a long period of trying to figure out what comes afterward, right, during Reconstruction in the United States and these liberal wars of reform um, in, in Mexico that follow uh, in the 1850s, 1860s. Um, to, to figure out what's, uh, what's going on, right? And then, of course, the French are involved in Mexico, too, and invade in the 1860s, so quite at the same time period when the U.S. South is being invaded by the U.S. North. Um, but in the aftermath of these invasions, you have the rise of this new political elite. In Mexico, this is most commonly uh, known as the Porfiriato, the period of the reign of Porfirio Diaz, who's in power from 1876 roughly to 1910, uh, 1911. Um, and in the United States South, this is a period of New South uh, democratic rule. You have the rise of this uh, political elite that also takes lead after the end of Reconstruction that basically calls the shots in uh, across the South uh, for even longer than the 19-teens, up through the 1930s, you could, you could argue. Um, so basically look at the Porfirian era and Porfirio Diaz's approach to um, rural development and capitalist development and to that of the um, New South Democrats uh, within the American South. And my basic conclusion, and it's a sort of blunt argument, there's plenty of space for uh, fine-tuning and particularities within the book as well, but that Diaz and the New South Democrats basically had the same idea, right? They wanted to pull this messy, chaotic countryside into the folds of the global economy. They wanted to produce more uh, commodity and cash crops. They wanted to load them onto rail cars, and they wanted to export them around the world and make lots of money for uh, landholders, people who uh, were coming into the ownership of lots of land that had either been held cooperatively or had been a part of the uh, uh, been a part of yeoman agriculture within the within the U.S. South. So, um, in this period, there's this massive consolidation of landholding in both the U.S. South and Mexico. You have uh, yeomen and peasants and smallholders being uh, tossed off the land. Uh, very dramatically so in Mexico, but then quite also dramatically in, in the United States South. Um, and this, this consolidation of landholding and uh, capitalist agriculture in both these regions makes a lot of folks really, really rich, uh, makes a lot of sort of robber barons uh, in the countryside. 
but it also is going to lead to two massive social revolts uh, because of the, um, uh, the grudges that were built up over the decades as uh, small, small farmers were dispossessed of their land. And in Mexico, this is a kind of defining moment in modern Mexican history, the Mexican Revolution, right, which defines much of the 19-teens. Uh, in the U.S. South, this is going to be the populist movement, which comes earlier during the 1880s and 1890s as well. And am I arguing that the Mexican Revolution and the populist movement in the U.S. South are exactly the same thing? No, of course not. I mean, they end up in very different ways. The Mexican Revolution is way bloodier, um, much more tumultuous in upsetting society, uh, claiming nearly a million lives. Uh, that wasn't true of the populist movement, but they were both movements of dispossessed country people um, trying to change the system and for them to get a better shake, essentially, to try to regain some of the land and privileges lost in the previous decades. And so I narrate these side by side. It's sort of a historiographical comparative chapter in many ways, right? Looking at the ways historians have treated it, but then also looking at, you know, how are um, dispossession of smallholders and the rise of tenancy and large plantations in Georgia and um, Morelos in Mexico, what are the parallels between those? Um, and the basic argument uh, that I make, of course, is that you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between them. They're not exactly the same, but I'd say that what the similarities between Georgia and Morelos are greater than that between Georgia and Iowa, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which I think is an important uh, takeaway. So it's a sort of, this first chapter looks at this broad swath of 50 years, try to bring readers in, right, to bring, get the Americanists up to speed about what the heck was the Mexican Revolution, you know, tell the Mexicanists a little bit about the populist revolt and who the major figure is and what the kind of backstory is. Uh, that takes us up to the, the real moment that the book is about, which begins in the, uh, the early 30s when Cardenas and Roosevelt uh, gain, gain power in, in each country. Yeah, let's talk about the 30s next, because, you know, I love this. There's a great moment early on in your book, and then, it, and then it comes back again later when Americans go to Mexico in the 30s, and they're blown away by the possibilities of a real revolution, which included expropriating and deeding um, hundreds of thousands of acres of prime land to landless peasants um, in both regions, as you described, shared the problem of landlessness. Uh, and I love this. You have this great, there's a great little, um, you know, but there's a really nice moment in your book when you say at one point that Mexico was very much in vogue in, in the 1930s in art and culture, of course, but it was also in vogue in land reform. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think Americans responded to the Mexican Revolution in lots of different ways, right? I mean, I think most political leaders after 1911, after the violence breaks out in Mexico, most political leaders in the U.S. saw it as creeping socialism, that they saw as a threat, that, you know, a Bolshevik revolution, especially after 1917, that uh, this was a communist revolution that was a threat to the stability of the United States, right? So a lot of conservatives in the U.S. are seeing it as a dangerous red uh, terror south of the border. But then there's a lot of other Americans, particularly, you know, on the left, uh, progressive reformist folks, who had seen the progressive movement sort of squashed within the United States after the end of World War I, um, who really looked quite romantically to Mexico uh, as a place where, you know, their wildest dreams are finally being realized. So you have this steady stream, especially during the 20s and, 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 and peaking in the 30s as well, of American journalists and writers who go down and, and spend time in Mexico, who hang out with Diego Rivera, right, and who, who see these romantic portrayals of social revolution and... Uh, are dreaming of it as something that just can't happen in the United States. You know, the U.S. is, the resistance is too great, but in Mexico, it, it's, uh, it's happening. Um, 
And in the 30s, I think the story that most historians know is the sort of cultural exchanges, right? Diego Rivera traveling up to New York to paint in the the Rockefeller building there. and um, These sorts of um, uh, exchanges of of, of artists and writers and all that sort of thing. Um, I think that's the established narrative of South-North influence, right? Of Mexico making a dent onto the United States in this era. But uh, what I dug up in the course of my research was that it wasn't just painters and muralists and, and artists who were, who were uh, coming from Mexico, but it was, it was political ideas too, right? Particularly about how to divide up land and then make that land productive afterward, right? So um, I look at this through uh, New Deal uh, reformers, particularly those in government. I also look at those outside of government. I look at New Deal reformers who had, were incredibly, um, had a very rosy and romantic understanding of Mexico, sometimes very unrealistic too, uh, but that didn't stop them from from chasing these dreams down. Um, Folks in the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, within Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. And the the USDA in the 1930s was really one of the most sort of reformist and socially reformist bureaus of the entire New Deal. Uh, At least there was a large wing of folks who were very interested in poverty uh, and in uh, getting rid of the plantation complex, especially in the American South and figuring out how to do this. And they were looking everywhere around the world for for ideas, but Mexico is one place where they particularly found plenty of them. So in the book, I look at one particular USDA, one particular New Deal agency that derived, that really had its birth uh, in this uh, influence from Mexico. And that's the Farm Security Administration, the FSA. The Farm Security Administration has its sort of a moment in the sun from 1937 to 1943 or so, so relatively late within the New Deal. Um, But I argue in the book that it's ideas from Mexico and inspiration from Mexico that provides the seed for this agency in the very beginning. And then throughout its operation, uh, reformers within the FSA would would take frequent trips down to Mexico to see what they were doing, what was was being accomplished there, what they could learn from both the successes and the failures of uh, reformers under Cardenas, who are involved in one of the largest land reform programs in the history of the Western Hemisphere at the time. And um, the Farm Security Administration and, and was, was one of these prime examples, but then there were plenty of others as well, just from outside uh, of the walls of government uh, as well. The, the Southern Tenant Farmers Union uh, is uh, someone think quite familiar to most Southern historians as this sort of uh, would-be radical agents, uh, would-be radical uh, union, this biracial uh, uh, cotton pickers union uh, that it's established in, the, in 1934. Uh, in Arkansas and challenges plant, planter power in, in a really unprecedented way during the decade. Um, a lot of uh, Southern, this is sort of a standard uh, part of the narrative of the, of the New Deal in the U.S. South. Uh, but this is another moment when I was exploring the STFUs, the Southern Tenant Farmer Union's records. Uh, this is another example of this low-hanging fruit that, that I found earlier on, right? That there's this long uh, report within the STFU papers uh, on Mexico, that, that the key leaders within the STFU, particularly H.L. Mitchell, who was, the, who was the main leader of the union, had gone down to Mexico and organized workshops down there in the late 1930s to try to gain ideas for how they could also learn from Mexico. It wasn't just a new deal, but it was the folks, um, these sorts of uh, civil society unions that were also uh, d- drawing influence from, from Mexico as well. And that was a pretty fascinating thing to find on, in the you know, dusty microfilm uh, of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union papers that had been undoubtedly picked over by <laughs> hundreds of graduate students looking for theses in the last 30 years. 
But none of them knew anything about Mexico and none of them could speak Spanish. And because of that, they just hopped over this massive report that, you know, was a pretty, pretty serious significance to what this union was doing. Um, so, yeah, so that, that in terms of South North influences, there's lots and lots uh, going on within uh, throughout the, the 1930s and into the early 1940s uh, as well. And, and, and tracking down some of these threads was really, really exciting stuff. It was just so much fun, both in U.S. and Mexican archives to go looking for the evidence for this because it was just surprisingly abundant. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, let's continue with that thread because um, I sort of, you know, there, there were, there were, there were moments in your book when, when I think that I was thinking when I was reading this book is a history of strange bedfellows, um, yeah. and, you know, strange connections and unexpected um, conjunctures. And one of the strange connections or the strangest bedfellows I think of your book, and I think you'll probably agree with me, is what is, uh, you know, a white supremacist, imperialist Southerner like Josephus Daniels of North Carolina doing championing the championing, excuse me, the New Deal in Mexico? Yeah, <laughs> Josephus Daniels. <laughs> Josephus Daniels is one of the protagonists of the book, and he's just such a weird character that I've spent so many hours trying to figure out what made him tick. And I'm still not entirely sure that I have. He's this kind of classic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character in many ways. Um, and it's so fascinating when I started learning about him, about the different ways that U.S. and Mexican historians understood this guy. Okay, So Josephus Daniels is North Carolina uh, reformer, one of the most rabid white supremacists uh, in his state, uh, was involved in the Wilmington race riot in the late 1890s. Uh, and this guy's got blood on his hands. He's one of the worst uh, sort of Jim Crow defenders um, uh, out there. But in U.S. historiography, um, Daniels is portrayed as exactly that, right? The sort of race-baiting demon of the Jim Crow era, who has, you know, not a single redeeming quality. Uh, Glenda Gilmore's book, Gender and Jim Crow, I think hammers this home the best. You know, Daniels emerges as a sort of anti-hero, rightfully, within that book. But then, when you're reading Mexican historiography, Daniels is the great gringo who understood Mexico. <laughs> Daniels is the ambassador to Mexico during the 1930s, from 33 to 42, if I remember correctly. Um, and Daniels is like, comes off as the complete opposite, right? It's like they'd never, the, the Mexicanists hadn't really grappled with his career in the United States, and the U.S. historians hadn't really grappled with what he did in Mexico. But uh, Daniels is portrayed in Mexican historiography as, uh, you know, the sympathetic uh, gringo who comes down and, you know, re realizes that what Cardenas is doing in terms of land redistribution is required for social stability in Mexico. And he basically lets it go on. He doesn't try to stop it. He doesn't bring the Marines in to try to can this entire experiment. Um, so he comes up very, very romantically in many ways. I mean, I've heard, I've read some pretty, uh, you know, Daniels gets extolled quite a bit in the, in the Mexican story, the Mexican historiography uh, side of it. And, and Trying to trying to figure out, you know, how he becomes this figure who does indeed uh, come to champion a lot of Cardenas's reforms while he's ambassador, even though Cardenas's reforms were challenging, was taking away land from Americans. I mean, Daniels's job in Mexico as ambassador was to protect the interests of Americans in part, and he's choosing to go with political positions by supporting Cardenas that uh, were antithetical to that, right? So in doing his job, he's not doing his job uh, in certain senses, but he, his political sympathies with the revolution and with uh, Cardenismo and the, the land experiment in the 1930s uh, are so strong that they overrule his, you know, his sort of uh, job description to protect American property, which I, I find to be quite interesting. 
Um, and people have written about this sort of riddle a little bit, but I think the real key to understanding what made Daniel so um, uh, sympathetic to the, the to the land reform project in Mexico was that he was really familiar with uneven land tenure in the American South, right? That he'd grown up in North Carolina and seen the rise of plantation agriculture uh, and the rise of tenancy in particular and saw it as something poisonous and toxic that was sapping his home state. And then he saw Mexico trying to undo that uh, tangled dilemma within uh, Mexico. And then he saw that, you know, this is, this is what needs to be done in Mexico and heck, this is what needs to be done in the American South as well. And so it's really these sorts of regional uh, particularities that he brings to the table uh, that, that, that makes sense out of what his career in, in, in Mexico in the 1930s. Yeah. But yeah, he's a riddle. He's a weird one. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that, that was my experience. Um, I'm, I'm, as you know very well, I'm not an American historian. And my, my knowledge of, of Daniels was precisely that having to do with the, with the Wilmington, um, with the Wilmington race riots. And so I was, right. I found that just very, very fascinating. Let's let's talk now about um, another kind of regional um, transplant, if you will, if that's the right way of saying it. I mean, I was just fascinated by your discussion of the Tennessee Valley Authority and the um, the transplantation, if that's if that's the right way to put it, of the t- of what you call yeah. El Tennessee or the the um, TVA idea in Mexico. Tell us about how that happened. Right, right. Yeah. So this this is uh, the last chapter of the book, Transplanting El Tennessee, uh, which discuss, discusses exactly that, right? The, the career of the, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority in Mexico, particularly after World War II. And this is actually the last chapter of the book that I wrote. And curiously, it's one that I wrote after arriving to uh, Knoxville and after starting this job at the University of Tennessee, which Knoxville is still the headquarters of the Tennessee Valley Authority. This had only been a real tiny uh, chunk, maybe a, a sentence or two of the dissertation that I ended up developing much further. I mean, part, was it was, part of it was living here and, and having more access to uh, TVA records, but then realizing this is a big part of the story of these dialogues uh, between the U.S. South and Mexico, right? Because if the TVA was anything, it was a, a southern project. I mean, it was a federal project to try to overcome southern rural poverty. And um, it is a story that would have almost as much impact on Mexico as the Green Revolution narrative that I that I discussed earlier as well. Uh, and the Green Revolution has been understood, you know, as a major turning point in the history of rural Mexico. Um, and the Green Revolution, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, the, the TVA uh, hydro hydraulic development projects haven't been treated as seriously in Mexican historiography. There's been far fewer books that uh, discuss these uh, hydraulic uh, development bureaus that are founded in the late 40s and during the 1950s, but they're really, really significant and really transform millions of people's lives as well. Uh, so in the late 1940s, the, the, the basic story is that uh, with the, the inauguration of Miguel Aleman in 1946, who's often seen as the sort of the, the, the rising conservative tide in the institutionalization of the Mexican Revolution, uh, not long after he is uh, inaugurated in late 1946, he unveils these massive plans for building hydroelectric dams and uh, associated road building, uh, public health projects, um, and uh, uh, communications networks, uh, industrializations, and so and so forth on ma- on major rivers within, uh, particularly Mexico's coastal south, uh, within states like um, uh, Veracruz, uh, Oaxaca, um, and Chiapas as well, and. 
uh, Aleman undertakes these these major projects that are basically sold as you know the 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 uh, the, the height of nationalist development of this of this institutionalized revolutionary state that was going to use its power to uh, improve people's lives uh, for the better and. In looking for where he's getting these ideas, not just Aleman himself, but these uh, bureaucrats working underneath him, uh, these engineers, it was dramatically clear to me uh, in looking through the press accounts of this that the Tennessee Valley was one of the primary places that Aleman was looking. In fact, when Aleman takes his first trip to the United States uh, in 1946, um, which is really the first kind of major visit of a Mexican president to the United States since the uh, revolution broke out, so more than 30 years, the places that Aleman stops are Washington and New York, right? very expected places to go, but then also Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Muscle Shoals, Alabama. <laughs> and those are not usually the you know, first stops on uh, foreign visits uh, of the United States because you know they're pretty small places, but they're incredibly influential because they're both the sites of major TVA dams, right? Wilson Dam and Muscle Shoals, and um, uh, a number of dams around in the in the Chattanooga area. So Aleman flies in, makes these bold and blowsy com comparisons between the Tennessee Valley and the underdeveloped regions of southern Mexico. And then uses these uh, this, this rhetoric as fuel for uh, publicizing these these uh, these big dam campaigns that he then launches in Mexico. So I look at a couple key moments, right, like within this uh, within this narrative, the the beginning and unveiling of these projects, but then all the also the the continuous linkages between the Mexican state and the TVA as they undertook these uh, large scale uh, dam building projects within Mexico. And there's a steady exchange of engineers, of social scientists, um, drawing comparisons, again, between uh, a place like Veracruz and a place like northern Alabama, which, again, so much of this book is a history of comparisons, and uh, it, it intrigued me uh, endlessly to read about these public uh, uh, comparisons in, in the front pages of the Mexican press between uh, these uh, rural areas in the American South and uh, areas that within the, the southern coast of Mexico that, that these uh, state builders uh, saw as, uh, as parallel to them. So it was certainly a, uh, a really fun part of the story to tell, especially when to tell while living in Knoxville, because I got to give a number of uh, talks to local folks here who'd grown up around the TVA and the TVA uh, uh, employees and officials too about uh, the, the global history of the TVA. And there's, there's been other historians who've written about TVA and the world, right? There's been great books on TVA in China and India and, and all around, but no one had really written much on Mexico previously. And uh, with the whole U.S.-South Mexico comparisons that have been a key part of the rest of the book, it seemed like this was an absolutely essential part of the story to tell as well. Yeah, it's wonderful when our professional lives uh, overlap with our intellectual interests in that way. So you move to Knoxville and suddenly yeah. you can write a chapter about the TVA, which might have been... Um, you know, may not even have been as obvious to you a thing to do if you if you had lived somewhere else. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was a very uh, happy coincidence. That's Definitely. Sure. You know, I think we've I think you've you've really done a beautiful job of giving of giving listeners a, a, um, a sense of some of the great themes of the book and arguments and also some of the interesting characters, um, interesting politicians and reformers, the institutions that they were working in or what that they helped develop. Um, I wonder if I could just ask you kind of a, I always like to ask historians kind of philosophical questions about their books. And I wonder if you mind, if you would indulge me just for a moment. 
Um, in some ways, when I was reading your book, I thought, um, is this book a history of possibilities realized and possibilities not realized? Is, would you, do you think that's a fair way to think about your book? I mean, d d does, did that occur to you when you have, there's so many ambitious plans and beautiful idealistic schemes. And then, you know, none of them work out the way that the people who envisioned them intended. And of course, that's the history of humanity right. in a nutshell. But I just would, I was curious what you would say right. about that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of parts of researching and writing and, you know, hopefully reading this book that are very encouraging uh, and that are very inspiring. Uh, but then there's also a lot of things that are very depressing in the sense of these grand schemes that went nowhere. I think particularly at this moment in time, considering the relationship between the United States and Mexico in 2017 and the age of Donald Trump, um, it is inspiring to hear about these solidarities and networks that existed uh, and of Mexican influences transforming U.S. politics in Washington, D.C. That is really, really exciting. And this is a, a lesson that I think can, that we need at this moment more than, more than any other when the relationship between the United States and Mexico was not so, um, um, you know, as two enemies, <laughs> but as two friends can, can approaching kindred problems. And, uh, so I think that's, that's a, something that, you know, it's, it's very encouraging to read. But most of the dialogues in there and most of the possibilities that came out of those solidarities, as you rightly uh, mentioned, failed, right? Most of the sort of uh, peasant-friendly elements of the Green Revolution that were inspired by uh, uh, similar problems in, in the United States South uh, while in Mexico uh, didn't play out. They were eroded by other possibilities, by a sort of Cold War emphasis on production, production, production over any sort of economic livelihoods. Um, there, the TVA idea, the TVA sort of transplanting as well. I mean, whether the TVA even worked, quote-unquote, in East Tennessee is still up in the air. I mean, this region still remains one of the poorest in the United States, and it certainly did no real favors to uh, to poor rural people in Mexico in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, but the possibilities were there in many ways, uh, just as they were with the Farm Security Administration as well. Um, but they, of course, they didn't end the way that most of the idealistic reformers who undertook them uh, imagined them to. So. <laughs> Philosophically, in terms of you know what what's to come and wh how I see this, whether it, whether it gives me faith in <laughs> civilization and humanity, um, it's a it's a it's a it's a mixed bag to be sure. Yeah, I get that, and you know I like the I like what you said very much. I think in this moment when um, when things have deteriorated uh, in in such a um, such an unfortunate and and really in many ways painful way. It's very nice. I agree with you. It's very nice to read your book and to think about moments when when solidarity seems so much more um, more prevalent and 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 seen and you know idealism seemed like seemed like a possibility rather than something silly. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, um, Mexico and the United States are two countries that have a heck of a lot in common uh, that look very similar in certain ways that tends to be forgotten in the debates about immigration and poverty and corruption and you know the sort of things that the ways that most americans understand the you know, mexico today that's that doesn't reflect many of the things that i found in my research at all yeah very very interesting well professor olson i've enjoyed talking to you so much and i i know we've taken a lot of your time and we appreciate that 
I wonder if you would tell the listeners, because I know people will be very interested to know what you're working on next. And if I'm not mistaken, it's a very interesting project. So could you, would you mind telling us a little bit yeah, about absolutely. that? Yeah, absolutely. So after I finished this book, you know, about almost a year ago, I did a lot of head scratching to figure out, you know, who am I as a historian? What, what really makes me tick? What, I've, I've done a lot of stuff in, in a lot of different uh, areas. And this book set, it, it moved me in so many directions. That I kind of have to choose, choose one going forwards. And I got down and scratched my head a lot. And I realized that what I like, what I really like to study, what, who I am as a historian, is I study the rural United States and look at its global interconnections and its global, uh, uh, its place within the larger world, right? And most people don't think of rural places as global at all. They think of them as, you know, the, the antithesis to that. Um, so I, I wanted to continue down this path of looking at the rural U.S. as that globally connected place, and particularly with interest in the South, right? I mean, I very much come out of Southern history uh, in my training and uh, my interests. And of course, I live within live in the U.S. South now as well. So I, I got at the idea that the next book, in a nutshell, is going to be a global history of American country music. <laughs> it's basically going to be wow. an uh, examination of how American country singers and country records find their way into really, really unexpected places and scenarios during the 20th century all across the world. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people <laughs> raise their eyebrows when I mention this as a project. They're like, country music didn't go anywhere. Are you kidding me? You know, like <laughs> jazz and rock and roll. Sure, they found their way to Berlin and Egypt and God knows where else, you know. But country music, that's the anti-cosmopolitan, right? And hey, you listen to a lot of country songs and their espousing is precisely that message. Well, that's not actually what happened. Country music did travel and traveled... Uh, all over. Uh, it, in fact, served as the sort of um, vanguard of what, or uh, served as the representation of American culture for millions and millions of people during the, the Cold War in particular, um, who listened to American country records um, and musicians who were sent all over the world. And, uh, some of them were these records and musicians, these songs found their way into these unexpected contexts through lots of different uh, networks and channels. And part of it has to do with the, the U.S. military, the Armed Forces Radio Network, that, of course, uh, sets up military bases across the world uh, in the in the post-1945 period and has plenty of country music uh, being played on these networks to, uh, to please the large white Southern population that made up much of the military in this, in this time. White Southerners are disproportionately represented in the military. Um, it has to do with uh, the U.S. government sending country singers abroad to play uh, for uh, in, in various parts of the world, whether it's in Eastern Europe or Southern Africa, as representations of what the U.S. stands for. Um, it's a story of capitalism, to be sure, about record companies uh, across uh, multiple different na uh, nationalities. Um, but it's, it's moving in a whole lot of directions, but I'm really excited about it, and I think it builds on a lot of the strengths of uh, the multi-sided, multi-historiographical uh, research that went into the first book, but it also... Um, uh, looks at a sort of broader perspective than just the uh, North America, but looking at, at precisely uh, really, you know, all around the world from East Asia to Africa to across Latin America as well to see how country music traveled and, uh, and, and what its travels meant for you know, the Cold War, globalization, Americanization, uh, and how people understood the United States at this important moment in time. I think it sounds amazing. And one of the things I think is amazing about it is that country music itself has a strong um, connection to, to the local. I mean, it, it intensely nostalgic for the local and the rural. 
even now when country music stars live in Nashville and live right. in, in big cities and even themselves don't come from the rural South the way that they once did, they, there's this amazing, if you listen to contemporary country music, this amazing connection to and nostalgia for, for the rural world. Right. Uh, and to link that to the global to me is a fantastic move. If you can do it, it's going to be beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think this is, you know, I think this is part of it. Country music is nostalgic music of a lost countryside. I mean, country music is born out of urbanization within the United States uh, that it's really meant for city people to, uh, you know, reflect on this, on this lost countryside. Well, the global narrative of, of population movements in the late 20th century is exactly that. It's of rural people leaving the countryside and going to cities. So I think there's got to be some sort of connection between uh, what this, this sort of cultural matrix within the United States that made this possible that also would connect with someone in Zimbabwe or Colombia or Mexico that, you know, if you're a rural person who's trying to deal with city life and romanticizing the, the country in your own way, then you know, American country music is an established way to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I just think it sounds fantastic. Yeah, I'm really um, we've been talking with, yeah, I, I hope you are. I think it's going to be an amazing book. I can't wait to read that one. Uh, we've just been talking for the last few minutes with uh, professor Tori Olson of the university of Tennessee, Knoxville. He's written an amazing book called agrarian crossings reformers and the remaking of the U S and Mexican countryside. It was published by Princeton this year, 2017. Uh, Professor Olson, we've had a tremendously good time talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. It was just a real pleasure to be here. Uh, It was a great pleasure for me too. Thank you so much and I I wish you all the best. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye.